Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with the author and translator Jhumpa Lahiri. Her latest book, Translating Myself and Others, features essays on the art of translation. She received the Pulitzer Prize in 2000 for her debut story collection, Interpreter of Maladies. Very exciting to have her here. What did you guys talk about? So we got into her journey into writing and translation and the Italian language, which she now exclusively writes in and has been for the past decade. We talked about how she translates her works and the works of others into English from Italian. We got into her background. She was raised in America by Indian immigrant parents who spoke Bengali at home. Outside of the home at school, she read, wrote, and spoke English. And this created this really fascinating duality and challenging duality for Jhumpa in which she effectively was a citizen or saw herself as a citizen of no place. So it was fascinating to learn how Italian in turn has become a mode of redefining her life, her writing, her sense of identity too. She now lives in this sort of linguistic triangle. I should add that Jhumpa's book, Interpreter Maladies, was like a beacon for me growing up. I read it at 17 and it made me want to become a writer. It's such a beautiful collection of stories. I just read it. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't. Before we get into the episode, we'd first like to thank our season five sponsor, Le Cole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. Since its founding in 2012, Le Cole has created an incredible wealth of knowledge around the jewelry arts through its courses, conversations, exhibitions, kids' workshops, and many other offerings. Publishing has been a particularly key part of Le Cole's program. Over the past decade, they have published 26 titles in total, 11 books, and 15 exhibition catalogs, and have eight more slated to come out this year alone. Particularly ambitious is the forthcoming two-volume Dictionary of Jewelers and Goldsmiths in France from 1850 to the present, currently available for pre-order. The result of a 10-year research project, it contains approximately 40,000 entries on jewelers, goldsmiths, silversmiths, designers, and others. Other upcoming Lacole book projects include a title on Marie Antoinette's diamonds, another on precious stones, and one on the life of the 17th century explorer and gem merchant, John Baptiste Tavernier. To learn more about Lacole or purchase its books, head to www.lacolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now here's Spencer and Jumpa. Joining me in the studio today is the author and translator, Jhumpa Lahiri. Welcome, Jhumpa. Thank you. So to begin, I wanted to open up this conversation with a specific period of time, seven years. And you were born in 1967 in London to Bengali immigrant parents who, in 1969, moved to South Kingstown, Rhode Island, where you were raised. 
Actually, in 69, they moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh. Yeah. My father got a job at MIT, and we lived for one year in Cambridge, close to Central Square. I actually went to see the house recently. I had never gone to look at it before. Anyway, and then in 1970, my dad got a job at the University of Rhode Island, and we moved there. Could you speak to these first seven years? I mean, what about these years in particular proved so formative to shaping you, your life, your work, and, and your relationship with language? Well, so the first seven years of my life, to me, I mean, I remember a portion of them, but essentially, I was an only child until I was over seven years old. And I was aware that my family's trajectory involved movements. And I was aware that my parents' emotional center was not where we lived. And I was aware of a certain loneliness, personally and also within the family. And, and I was aware of, of a lot of creativity in that there was a lot of energy put into connecting with people, on my parents' part, connecting with people who would make them feel more at home, would bring them happiness, would make them excited. And I was also aware of an extreme precariousness to everything. Until I was seven, we were moving from sort of rented place to place. And the first house I remember living in, I was about, it was 1970, so I was three, so you know, between the ages of three and seven, we lived in that first house I remember in Rhode Island. And then we moved to another sort of a faculty apartment and then eventually to a house. But by that time, I was over eight years old and I had a sister. So those first seven years were very specific in that sense, that it was just the three of us. Would you describe it for you as a period of solitude? Largely, yeah. And I think that I would describe it as a period of essentially being with my mother, who took care of me. My father went to work. My mother did not work outside of the house. She had some interesting projects and babysitting, and she was an Avon lady. So she had discreet activities. But essentially, I was with her. And then I was sent to school. So the whole kind of slow and, on my part, reluctant entry into the world, into society, happened in those years. So I have memories of being sent to nursery school, of having to go to into various school contexts, going to kindergarten, so on and so forth. I was very aware of that. And I learned how to read in that period. And growing up, you had what you've described as this long clash 
between Bengali and English. You've also described it as a linguistic exile and a continuous sense of estrangement. Can you tell me a little bit about your early relationships with these languages and how they evolved over time? Well, I didn't speak any English, essentially, until I had to go to school. And so I remember my mother putting me in front of public television and that there was a purpose to my watching these programs, all the wonderful educational programs in the 70s, so Sesame Street, Electric Company, etc. And and that was my contact with American, well, that was my contact with the English language, and it was also my contact with any kind of American reality. People, how they looked, how they dressed, how they spoke, how they behaved. But the rest of my life, because I feel that that period was, you know, my mother was the dominant presence in my life, Bengali was certainly the dominant language in that period. And I remember being, well, I was horribly shy and nervous to talk to people and to make connections. And I imagine there was something about my having to not only separate from my mother, my family, my home, but also to do it in a different language. So I think both of those things were feeding off of one another to add to the general sense of anxiety or estrangement that I I certainly felt. I was a rather anxious and estranged child. I mean, I was very serene, if you can be anxious and serene at the same time. And I wasn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't express anxiety on the outside, but I felt it on the inside. Hmm. And you sort of had to live between these two places. Everyone, of course, has their home life and their school life. But for you, this was drastically, there was a line between the two, and that line was language. It was. And then there was Calcutta, Kolkata now. But there was the third place. And that place would... Well, first of all, we went to the place. So there were these, you know, trips, which back then and to my, from my childhood point of view, were epic journeys to go to visit my parents' home and world. And then there were, of course, all the the correspondence, the letters, the lifeline for my parents, which was coming in the form of letters largely in the form of letters, occasionally a telegram, no phone conversation, unless it was a diary emergency. And even then, it was prohibitively expensive. I feel like the thought of making a phone call to India back then was like the thought of my deciding right now, I think I'll just take a cab to Los Angeles. Yes, technically, maybe you could do it, but you wouldn't, right? Because it would be so seemingly beyond the realm of possibility. Did Calcutta form a sort of mythic imagination in your mind? Did you have this heightened idea of it because of that distanced relationship? Well, I remember going. So the first time I traveled, I was too young to remember. That was in 1969. It was just before 
my parents moved from London to Cambridge. And that summer, my mother took me to Calcutta for the first time. I don't remember that trip at all. The second time we went, uh, I was five. And that was a very traumatic trip because when we got there, my mother's father had just passed away and she didn't know until she got there that he had passed away 11 days before. So I have memories of that trip, also because that trip lived on in the mythology of my family as, as such a difficult period. And then the following year, we went back again in 73. I was six. We went back that year. And so, yeah, that's still within the seven-year period. And that was a time of a lot of violence and political turmoil, some of which I rework in the lowland. So I have memories of that period and the sort of general fear and tension in the air and within families. So it was a real place. It was a concrete place to me. And essentially, I was living in a recreated Calcutta in my house. We had a completely sort of sealed off, practically sealed off home environment. It was very strange when an American person would come over to our house. I remember my mother babysat for the son of my first grade teacher, who was a lovely woman, Miss Molly. I don't know how it worked out, but she would bring her son, who was a little bit younger than I was, over to our house. My mother would look after him. And one day she came over for dinner. And I just remember what an event it was because someone from outside of our world, outside of our culture, was coming to eat in our home. And, of course, it was documented in their photographs and things. But I remember the sort of tension and excitement, you know, that accompanied that event because it was so rare. And in a way, it was like your two selves sort of colliding, too. Yes, it was, because she was my teacher. And she... School comes home. Yeah, school came (laughs) home. It was sort of the collision of two worlds. I spoke to her in English, and I learned how to read with her. You know, I learned the first real progress I think I made as a reader I was making with her, I imagine, in her class. So a third language, Italian, eventually comes into the picture. In 1994, you visited Florence with your sister and basically decided immediately that it was a language you needed to build a relationship with, that you wanted to begin studying, and so you did. And in 2003, you first visited Rome and immediately felt this sort of what you've called a sense of rapture and affinity. And then in 2012, you at last made the leap and moved to Rome with your husband and two children. What did learning Italian and eventually writing in Italian offer you that Bengali and English could never? Well, it unmade me and it remade me. So we're going back to sort of an origin story, I think, and the the need to rework that origin story And I think that's a broad, you know, (laughs) sweeping way of thinking about it. But I think that's what was happening. It was the need to have some agency, perhaps, in calling myself who I was or being who I was or something along those lines. The idea of who I was 
was always so contested. And so I think that I wanted to move beyond that agon and create an alternative to that narrative. I think those are the broad, I would say, kind of psychological, existential ways of reading what eventually happened, which was so extraordinarily surprising to me. I wasn't expecting it at all, you know, not at all. I won't ask why Italian, because you wrote a beautiful essay (laughs) on it that's in your new book. But you sum it up this way. You say it's to open doors, to see differently, to graft myself onto another. And I'm wondering, with that in mind, and with your sort of visceral response to Italy and the language, I'm wondering, what was it about Italy and about the sort of sensory experience of Italy, the sounds, the smells the that pulled you in? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's more aligned with a place like India, just generally, right? There's a sense of vitality in the everyday and ongoing sort of quotidian gestures that I associate more with spending time in, say, Calcutta, a sense of community that is very anchored, very rooted, very much a part of one's daily experience of life. And I think there's a a basic awareness of the past and of the deep past that is very much part of the present moment. So I picked up on those things. I think no matter what, even today, a place like Rome, which is so incredibly stratified temporally, it is in contact with the East. It is in contact with the East in a way that that the United States never felt. The United States felt completely, utterly detached with continents and an enormous ocean in between. Whereas I feel like if one wanted, you know, one could get in a car and drive and get from one place to the other. And I think there's something about that just symbolically. You know, I was obsessed with maps when I was a child. I'm still kind of obsessed with maps, but just sort of looking at the map and the world and how it's configured. I was always very aware of these things, very aware of geography. So though they're two very different places, India and Italy, of course, and Rome and, and Calcutta are very different cities in many ways, but there's more of a, I find, I found, I still find, more common ground between those two places. So there was something about Rome that kind of felt like that third point on the triangle that was going to allow, if we think of the precarious existence, sort of balancing on that point, but it needs to be anchored by the two other points. So that's what Rome feels like to me. That's what Rome is to me. Going back to where we started with seven years, I was wondering if you could speak to the most recent seven, which you've spent between Princeton and Rome. And how are you thinking about these three languages, this sort of linguistic triangle 
Would you say Italian's become your dominant language? For some things, yes. I think it's become the dominant language of my work in the past seven years. And it becomes the dominant language when I'm in Rome, when I'm in Italy. So next year I'll be in Rome. Soon I'll be in Rome and I'll be in Rome for the year and Italian will will become, you know, my dominant language. Just in terms of the sheer amount of Italian I will be speaking every day and the kinds of experiences I'll be having every day. But it shifts. It shifts depending on where I am. So when I come back to the United States, English becomes a dominant language. Even though there's all of this sort of ongoing work and life in Italian, I don't think a day has passed in the past seven years in which I haven't communicated or expressed myself or or something in Italian. That is not the case for Bengali anymore. You know, so I can go for days without Bengali sort of, if I don't have a conversation, because it's a conversational language. It's an oral language. So if I'm not having a conversation with somebody, you know, I'm not using the language in the same way. Do you find that time shifts for you between these three languages? Do you think differently when you're using those languages? Well, I sound different. I mean, languages have different intonations, as you know, different registers. And so I noticed the other day I was having a conversation with somebody and then an Italian colleague walked by and I just stopped to greet him. And I noticed my, everything shifts, you know, everything shifted. My register shifted. I think my expression probably changed. And I was aware of that. I was aware that when I was speaking in English, there was kind of a more... I don't know. There's a kind of more kind of placid like this, right? And then when I speak in Italian, I, I can hear myself speaking in Italian. And there's a different everything. There's a different rhythm. There's a different attitude. And the same with Bengali. So I've always been aware of that, though, because I've always been switching between two languages from the first seven years. Just speaking of these most recent seven years, I think it's worth pointing out how incredibly productive you have been. It's astounding. Multiple books from In Other Words to The Clothing of Books, which is this great short little book about book covers, to the translation work you've done, translating three of Domenico Starnone's novels, The Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories, and your new book, Translating Myself and Others. Tell me about all of this in this output, all while teaching as well. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think two of the most important books I would add to that list, Whereabouts or Dove Mi Trovo, which was the novel I wrote, the first novel to emerge from Italian. And then there was a book of poems also. In Italian. Yeah. And I just finished a book that I think we have to include in this seven-year period because it's a seven... If we're starting the clock from... Yeah, let's say 2015. It works. Yeah, it works. This book, I just finished, and it's going to come out in the fall, a book of short stories in Italian. So so that, too. I know. I mean, it's crazy. I don't understand how it happened. 
because I think that it's more books than years. <laughs> if we count them up. Yeah. It is more books than years. I don't know how it all emerged with such incredible, just kind of a one after another. I will say, well, I mean, when I go to Rome, still it's a place of unparalleled energy for me, energy and inspiration. So a lot of these projects come out of my time in Rome. Even the year I had one year of leave in these past seven years. And that's when I wrote the book of poems and drafted a number of the stories that are in this new book and finished the Penguin Anthology that came out that year and Dovimitrovo came out that year. Well, I guess there was a pandemic in between. <laughs> so that year, I mean, I might not have translated the third Starnone had it not been for the pandemic. I think I translated Confidenza, Trust, because of the situation, because of the pandemic. So maybe that contributed as well. You've also been co-translating Ovid's Metamorphosis. What's it been like to spend all that time with Ovid? I know that book's incredibly meaningful to you, so. It's like being in paradise. Yeah. I already worry about when it will end. And it won't for a while because we just finished the first five books and there are 15 books and we just finished one draft. And I imagine there will be many, many drafts. It just feels like the most glorious, creative and intellectual pleasure of my life. I just, I'm so happy and grateful to be reading this poem that has meant so much to me, reading it in its entirety, reading it in Latin, reading it and being guided by someone who really knows the Latin so that I can really fully, as fully as possible, understand what it is. And what is it about this idea of metamorphosis that you find so meaningful or that connects back to your own life, your own work, this project of learning Italian? I feel that if I have a personal philosophy, if I've arrived at a personal philosophy, it would be metamorphosis. And I think Ovid's philosophy is that of change, that change is life, and life is change, and without change there is no life. And then sort of declining that change and understanding what it means in all the possible contexts. So at this point in my life, I have come to understand that the key to understanding and reading life is through the idea and the fact and the reality of metamorphosis and thinking about it in so many different ways. So that's why the poem is so, continues to gain meaning for me personally or explain life to me. I mean, I imagine people have relationships, people who are religious have relationships to texts, right, that 
It's a compass. Yeah, that give you exactly your coordinates and decode life and give life meaning and and give you inspiration and give you the strength to go on and so on and so forth. So I think the metamorphosis has become that text for me. This year marks a decade since you started writing in Italian and since you went to go live in Rome. How do you think about your time spent in Rome? And on the subject of time, having spent all this time there, do you feel there's a sort of Rome time, like something, you know, a time that might be distinctive from, say, Princeton time or New York time? Absolutely. I mean, time has a completely different, it operates in a very different way when I'm in Rome. And I'm very aware of that when I'm in Rome, as opposed to, say, Princeton or New York. I haven't lived in New York now for for six years. New York has its own temporal reality, I think. But But I'm acutely aware of how one day in Rome feels like a couple of weeks in Princeton. There's a dilation of time each day. And I think it's because I feel so comfortable and happy there. And there are so many movements to the day that feel like very concrete points if we're mapping out a day. One of the things that it it strikes me, so I keep a journal. I'm always writing in my journal when I'm in Rome. And I'm always, even if it's just to note things, you know, I'll say, then I did this and then I did that and then I saw this person and then I took a walk there and then I did it, you know, and and even if it's a very ordinary day, even if it's just a sort of, Typical day of nothing special happening, no big occasions, just a kind of day when you wake up and you mm-hmm. shop and have a coffee and whatever, come back, work, swim, go to the gym, whatever, you know, just a kind of normal day. There's still these sort of beautiful peaks and valleys and that day is a landscape and there's just, t- there's space to the day. And I don't feel that at all in my Princeton life. My Princeton life is like, it feels very constrained and very fast. So I feel like I wake up, the day happens, and I come home and the day is ending. <laughs> it's a very different rhythm, totally different rhythm. Time moves more quickly, absolutely, in, in Princeton for me. Maybe not a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's turn to the act of translation. How do you think about the role of time when it comes to translation? Well, I mean, time is ruling everything. I think translations exist outside of time. And I think translations are putting times times into conversation because unless you're translating kind of simultaneously to the publication of a book, a best-selling author is coming out then you have like the fleet of translators all over the and that's nearly simultaneous even though the book's already been written mind you right but so the translators are so that way the book can be launched in many languages at the same time but normally that's not happening normally there's already a lag so there's already this little bit of jet lag going on even with Sternone's novels 
right? They come out, he writes them, he writes them in a moment. I come to them in my moment. But then when we open up the question of what it means to translate across time, what it means to translate Albino or Lala Romano or whomever, or Ovid in this case, then translation is also a conversation in, you know, about times, two different times, and, and you're working across time, and you're thinking so much about time, and the time that the work was written, and the time you're trying to bring the language into, the text into, and thinking about your time, and thinking about that time, and thinking about, you know, how to best make these times mesh. So that's one question, certainly, in terms of time and translation. The other thing is, because there is no definitive translation, I think even as one produces a translation, at least when I'm producing a translation, working on a translation, I'm very aware that this is a translation in its moment, in my moment, and that either I or somebody else can then come back to it and retranslate it and repropose the book in the same language in another time. So I think translation loosens the threads of time in a way and creates webs that are very interesting that aren't corresponding to sort of our more sort of linear sense of, okay, today's today and yesterday was yesterday and tomorrow's tomorrow. And I'm sort of moving through this. It's like an entanglement. (laughs) Yes, it's much more complex with translation. Everything's more complex with translation. Tell me about your own slow, winding path to self-translation. I know your first translated book in Ultra Parole, or in other words, was translated from the Italian by Anne Goldstein. But since then, you've translated all of your own works and your writing. Yeah, almost. Almost. Not not all. I've had help. I've had other people translate. So in this new book, my husband translated one of the pieces. A graduate student at Princeton translated one of the pieces. And I sort of looked at them and adjusted a couple of things. The new book of stories that's about to come out, I translated two-thirds of it, and another translator translated three of them, Todd Portnowitz at Knopf. He works at Knopf. He's also he's a translator and does independent work as a translator. So I've worked with him in this newest project. And then, yes, but Dovimitrovo, I decided to translate by myself, though I was prompted by the work that Frederica Randall had done and sort of, you know, gave me a little sample of what it might be like in English. And then I decided to translate it by myself. So I haven't been totally, totally by myself. There are always others generally in the picture. But I guess generally speaking, like how do you view this evolution of Mm self-translation? I understand from what you've written early on, it was quite challenging for you to to do that. Yeah, early on it was absolutely distasteful and (laughs) I didn't want to do it at all. And so I didn't because it felt so deeply discombobulating and distressing and a sort of unraveling of of something I was trying to very much to knit together, which was Italian. But now, 
there is a sort of eagerness to do it in spite of the fact that it's so arduous and crazy making at times. And even though I don't have that pleasure factor of translating myself because I don't, I'm not fed by my own work in the same way that other people's work feeds me. But I appreciate it for its rigor. What I appreciate about it now is that it's now become the best way I'm able to edit myself in Italian. And so that's why I translated, I very quickly and intensely translated the last stories in this new collection, which is called Racconti Romani, Roman Stories. I translated them myself because I knew I had to deliver the Italian version. These stories were relatively new, and I wanted to get them as good as I could get them in Italian. And I realized that if I translated them to English, all of the imperfections were going to come out very quickly. And they did. And so it was fantastic. And I, so I'm really grateful that I have this, the means to do this now, but I also feel very daunted and sort of, oh God, like, is this going to be the rest of my life? Am I always going to be caught between these two languages now for my literary production, at least on the Italian side? I don't know if I were to write something in English, I don't think I would want to translate it into Italian to see. So in that sense, because English will inevitably remain a language in which I have more general horsepower, you know, more just a greater range of tools and breadth and vocabulary and on the whole thing. So, but certainly for the Italian writing in this case. Now, when I wrote my poetry book, this was three years ago, four years ago. So I was in Rome and I wrote a book of poems, kind of a interesting book in which there's some prose and there's some poems and there's a kind of framing text and so on and so forth. When I wrote that book, I wrote it completely in Italian, completely thought it in Italian, it lived it in Italian, imagined it in Italian. It never occurred to me, oh, I want to translate some of these poems to make sure. I think it's more with prose that the translation out, you know, if I write it in Italian, the translation into English, at least in the case of these particular stories was very helpful to me. Again, I don't know what will happen with the next project, you know. And for now, I don't have to think about it because Ovid has completely overtaken my life and I won't have to worry about it for a while. It was in Italian that you realized you had an engagement and interest in writing poetry, right? Like that never occurred to you in English. Never, never, because poetry was a different language to me and it is a different language. And I felt as a person, as an English language person, reader, speaker, student, whatever, I loved poetry and I read poetry and I studied poetry, but I felt that it was the language of others and that I had no key to that door. But Italian, in the Italian house, I also discovered the poetry door and it opened it yielded when I stumbled into it, which is interesting. And I've translated a couple of those poems into English, which is strange, very strange. Philosophically, I find that translation makes for a really great metaphor. And your novel, The Namesake, was adapted 
or translated really into a film by the director Mira Nair. And I was wondering if you view her work and what she did with that film as a translation and and if in some sense you view the world, everything around us as some form of translation. Yeah, I think it can become sort of, you know, again, a, a much broader key to understanding pretty much everything. And I I certainly think of Mira's work as a a translation and interpretation of my novel. That's absolutely what it was. I mean if if we think about translation as translation meaning movement, translation meaning change. So what is not moving and changing constantly from our organism to the water levels, <laughs> to, you know, the air and the clouds and these birds and this time that we are spending together, what is not moving and changing? So in that sense, yes, I think we can think of translation as a central word and a central activity and a central aspect of life I think one of the reasons I felt inspired to put this book together was that I do think translation is the center of the solar system. And I call Ovid my son. He is my son, the son of my solar system, S-U-N. But I think translation in general we can think of because it, it, it has a reputation as being anything but the center. It has a reputation of being out there on the margins, sort of the Pluto of literary activity, right? Right. Translators are not celebrated the same way so many other artists are. No, no. I think recent years have been good for translation and translators, and that's really wonderful to see more attention, more excitement, more respect, more understanding of what goes on when one is translating just the devotion of it and the discipline of it and the marvel of it and the fact that translators are the people. I mean, translators are both. I mean, because they're at the center, I think, of the literary solar system, but they also go all the way to the Netherlands. Yeah. You've written about how translation is a political act, and you look at the war in Ukraine right now and the role that those translators are playing. and how important that is to understanding the story of what's happening in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually, many years ago, this is kind of random, but I I was asked by my friend and editor, Oskold Melnichuk, who is of Ukrainian descent, to co-translate some stories from the Ukrainian. It was one of my earliest translation hmm. projects. Um, I don't know the language, of course, but I was asked to translate off of a pre-existing translation, which isn't quite editing. I think it's sort of asking the translator in that situation to really get inside of the story as a writer, because a translator is a writer, of course, among other things. But you mentioned Ukraine and translation, and I just remember working on that project, and, and of course now what is happening is entirely dependent on translation for our understanding. So many things are dependent on interpretation. And someone 
who was able to see both sides and understand both sides, which is why I've always been so fascinated by the figure of the interpreter. Yeah, your first book. Yeah. <laughs> interpreter Maladies. Indeed. Yeah. You know, and that title came from someone I met who worked as an interpreter. I've talked about this in a doctor's office. And my father spoke at some point. I mean, he was very interested in languages and he studied Chinese. He was a Chinese language scholar in India. And he was very serious about it. And he was going to go to China and he was very dedicated to his study of Chinese. And then he eventually he studied Russian. He studied various languages when I was growing up. And I was always fascinated by his foreign dictionaries that were in our house. I still have some of them. He had a French dictionary. He had, I don't know how much he ever studied French, but his name is in it. Of course, he knew English. I remember, I have some memory of him saying at some point, I wanted to be or aspire to be an interpreter. And he would have been had he gone to China. He would have been interpreting from Chinese. And then he ended up not being able to go for political reasons because there was a border dispute between China and India, and he was unable to go and fulfill that vocation, I would call it. So I think the character of the interpreter also is drawn from my sense of my father and his own interest in foreign languages, especially when I was younger. I found it a kind of fascinating aspect of, of him. So in some sense, do you view the trajectory from that to interpreter of maladies to learning Italian as a sort of natural osmosis, almost? I think so. I mean, I think it's all connected. Absolutely. If you want to go back and thread the popcorn pieces, <laughs> there, there is, yeah, yeah you can. Hey everyone, taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our season five sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. In addition to exhibitions, publications, research projects, and public events, Lecole offers a range of courses led by experts across jewelry, craft, history, and the arts. Celebrating its first decade this year, Lecole, which has permanent campuses in both Paris and Hong Kong, is opening a third space in Shanghai and another in Paris, which will feature a public library of roughly 6,500 reference works on jewelry and gems. At its main Paris space, Lecole is also opening a Gematech, or gem library, that contains some 1,200 stones for visitors to view and even handle. This year, they'll also be presenting six exhibitions in Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Paris, and publishing eight books. You can learn more about Lecole and its current and upcoming offerings at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now, back to the episode. Well, let's go back to your upbringing in Rhode Island. As you mentioned, your father was a librarian, and your mother was an ardent reader of Bengali literature, and a poet herself wrote poems in Bengali, and you grew up reading 
library books and and you've written how your early reading sort of happened outside of time that you are ignorant of the market of current events and around age 15 you started reading russian literature you also read hawthorne who's writing years and years later would serve as the epigraph of your book on accustomed earth so hoping you could speak a little bit about this trajectory as a reader and how you think about your time spent reading both as a child and now. Well, reading has always been my life and sort of the basic purpose of life in some <laughs> sense, beyond the obvious basics of survival, of eating and sleeping and being sheltered. So I would say reading then comes right there. Um, <laughs> I have no other survival kit. So that was and is how I survive, is reading. But I also feel, and I think I've talked about this in something I wrote about how reading, for me, because I learned how to read in another language that was not my home language and not my parents' language, that reading was both part of the survival package, but also betrayal. Felt like always like a betrayal and that turning my back on them and discovering things about a world that they were suspicious of and already feeling like, you know, that sort of translator figure who was going to have access to another world that... Books became a portal. Books were a portal. Books were also very exotic in a way. I didn't grow up in a house full of books or anything like that. Our house was very, rather spare. If we go back to the first seven years, my memories of our homes, those places we inhabited, not very many things, a sense of people who have arrived from very far away with few possessions, a light footprint. So the books that were in the house, I was very aware of. So I was aware of these dictionaries that my father had. I was aware of an English dictionary. I still remember what that looked like. Had a kind of maroon cover English dictionary, and they used to pull that out to play Scrabble with their friends. <laughs> and I was aware of a couple of the books, early books that my mother brought over from, from Calcutta that were sort of very, very important books for her to have in our home. And then eventually we had more suitcases that we could bring and the suitcases got bigger and my mother would go to Calcutta and buy like 40 books and lug them back to America. And then we got more space and there were shelves and the shelves were filled. And so now she left behind all of these books that are in my father's house. But in the beginning, the books were scant and therefore very... They made more of an impact in a way because I was very intrigued by them. And then I would go to my, we lived along a, a sweet little street in Kingston, Rhode Island, and our house was at, on the street and then maybe 15 doors down was the public library on the corner where I would go for story hour and I would be read to and I got a card, I got a library card, and I could check books out. So I would go and check books out. I eventually worked at that library. It was my first job. 
as a high school student. I wanted to work there. I did. It was very formative for me, that place. And what about the trajectory of your writing life? You know, I know you wrote stories and notebooks as a kid and drew the covers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it wasn't until 30 that you really started writing in earnest. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say it wasn't until I was 30 that I felt that I dared call myself a writer. And that was thanks in large part to my time at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, where I had I was a writing fellow for seven months, and that was transformative. That was a metamorphosis. I changed from being unsure of what my calling was in life to being very sure of what it was. But, you know, I mean, I started writing. Yeah, I mean, I was very, very gun-shy. I was very nervous and hesitant to call myself a writer until that time. So even though I was writing kind of, sort of, in some fits and starts, and I I wrote most of the stories in interpretive maladies before I was 30, but I still didn't really feel like a, I could walk into a room and say, I'm a writer. I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I was and I wasn't. I was writing, but, you know, there's this whole thing of, you know, the label and what it means. Does it mean you've published a book? I feel that I know many people who have never published a book who are very much writers, deeply, profoundly writers, people I learn from being around them. I mean, writers are their breed, you know, and I don't think that it corresponds to publishing a book at all. I agree. It's storytelling in many ways, and the mode that that takes could be a variety of mediums. Sure, sure. And it can also mean maybe you work on something and you just don't publish it or doesn't get published for whatever reason, or maybe you don't even want to publish it. Who knows? Yeah. But they do exist outside of the machinery. Yeah. They transcend the machinery. Many artists are writers, painters, architects. They write in their own way, too. Yes. How do you think about your kind of writing time as opposed to reading time? How do you view those two modalities? I think it's one modality and... Sometimes the reading takes over and sometimes the writing takes over. I think of reading as the first, the primary modality. I think if you were to take one away, if I had to take one away, I would take away writing and I would need to read if I had to. But I think that reading opens the door to writing. And if you're serious about writing, you have to go back into the reading door. And you're just sort of like a translator. You know, you're in these two places, two dimensions all the time, which is very much my life in terms of my my calling, if you will, my creativity. It's my life now, logistically, 
because I have two lives in different places, very different places. And it was the learned model from my parents who, even though they didn't have sort of an active life in India anymore, they left it. They left it. They didn't have a home there anymore. You know, they had family, whatever, places to stay, but they didn't maintain a life the way I maintain a life in Rome, for example. But that's how my mother would always describe their lives, which was that they they had one foot in two boats that were moving along the river in a parallel fashion, and that they were moving through the river of life with this very precarious, you know, somehow sailing, but never in one boat ever. And, and that has become my life now in a different context. But that's my, absolutely my life. Just today I was thinking, I'm now, I'm almost 55 years old and there are two things that many human beings have and love and enjoy to add to their quality of life that I'm never really going to be able to have. And one is a pet, like a dog. You know, I was at a dinner yesterday and someone said, oh, you should get a dog when you move back to Brooklyn. I said, I can't, I can't get a dog. I can't ever get a dog. I mean, I guess I could. I guess people move around with their pets, but just saying, dog and plants. And that really strikes me because my mother loved plants. Now we're moving out of our house in Princeton and I already gave some of my plants. I'm not a very good person, but I'm not like my mom. She was very, she was kind of a magician with plants, but you know, I have a few plants on my windowsill and I've already given them away because we're leaving for a year. When we come back to live, after this year in Rome, I'm going to come back to live in New York. But I have a new job now. I'm going to be leaving Princeton. I'm going to Barnard. I'm going to teach at Barnard, my alma mater. So that's why we're moving back to New York. But I'll only be teaching in the fall. And in the spring and summer, I'll be free to go back to Rome. But what does this mean? It means I will not have plants and I will not have a dog. And I mean, I know it's really like just they're two random things, right? But they somehow, I feel like they separate me from so many people I know who have plants and or dogs, or they have gardens that they can kind of actually, maybe they go away for the summer for a couple of weeks or this, but that, but they have something, this ongoing, whatever it is, whether it's their window boxes or their tubs of basil or something. There isn't this neglect born from absence. I do have, I finally, on my terrace in Rome, I have some lovely cacti and hardy succulents and they can be ignored for, you know, a couple of years probably. And they're doing well and they give me great pleasure actually when I go back to Rome and I see those plants and I'm kind of in awe of the fact that they persist. But I do think that this two-sided life, it's certainly become my life from my choosing. And there's something incredibly rich and beautiful about it. And I feel so fortunate to have it. And at the same time, sometimes I think about it and I feel, I still feel that ache of, 
Why am I not a person who can have a dog or lots of plants in my house? I wanted to bring up time in the context of family. In 2008, you were on Charlie Rose and you said the basic fact of any family is that it becomes a ticking clock once you have more than one generation. And I was wondering how you think about this ticking clock in your own life, in the context of your own family. I don't remember saying that. Um, I'm sure I did. <laughs> it was a nice quote. <laughs> yeah. Writers in general often think about families because they are ticking clocks, because they produce just from the beginning drama upon drama of what happens. I am aware now of, you know, my children are now grown, growing quite. My son is 20, my daughter is 17. Those are different ages from um, certainly when I was talking to Charlie Rose. Again, metamorphosis, right? I mean, the situation is so different now. It's such a different frame that we're in as opposed to seven years ago, as opposed to 14 years ago, as opposed to, you know. And I've also changed my own, my family, my nuclear family that I made with my husband, you know, changed the circumstances of that family quite a bit. And I wonder about the consequences of all of these movements that I've subjected my family to and continue to subject my family to. In your novel, Whereabouts, the narrator notes that we can't escape the shadows our families cast. And I was wondering if you see writing and, and also in turn translation as a method for you of sort of making your way through these shadows, of making sense of them and end of life in the world. I don't think we can escape the shadows. So there's no escaping the shadows. But yeah, there's a sort of awareness and living with them, making some, creating some sort of amicable arrangement <laughs> with with the shadows, knowing that they're there, knowing they're not going anywhere, they won't drift away. It's not like the shadow you see on the street, only if the sun is in a certain position and then it goes away. They're not like that. They're there and they haunt you. But I think self-knowledge, awareness, reflection, these are very important tools we have. Another tool, and I, I might be wrong here, but another tool that you use in your life um, is swimming. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in other words, swimming serves as a sort of metaphor for you learning yes. this language, Italian. And swimming appears in Whereabouts, too. The narrator notes that every time I swim, I feel cleansed as if from within. I was hoping you might share a little bit about your time spent swimming. Do you write in your mind while swimming? Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah, I write in my mind a lot of sentences and things will come to me when I'm actively working on something. Swimming unlocks. I mean, people will say this about running too. Like I think 
Murakami talks about it. Joyce Carol Oates talks about running as kind of, you know, loosening of the imagination, its own portal, if you will, because you're in another dimension. And then swimming, you're really in another dimension because you're literally in the dimension of water. And you are detached from everything else, all life, responsibilities, phone, sound. It's a very... Floating. You're floating, but you're working. You're working to stay afloat and move and all of those things. So, so I definitely, it's a place where I work out things that I'm working on. I recite things. I recite lines from Ovid when I swim. I try to memorize lines. Often I'll say, okay, I want to memorize these two lines and I, I'll get into the pool and I'll just do that. So, yeah, it's become, I mean, the swimming has really taken root, I would say, in these past seven years because it was in, it was really in Princeton that I discovered I had access to an amazing pool, which I'll miss very much, Denuncio. I owe it a great deal. But I've always loved the water and I've always loved swimming and I have swum in different pools and places in my life. But at Princeton, the, the swimming became another part of my survival kit. I have to say, it was essential to my surviving in Princeton and still is. I'm already wondering what the pool situation is going to be when I get to New York. I know we're kind of near Chelsea, the Chelsea Piers. Might not be quite on my flight path, but I have to figure something out because it's become so crucial. And I think now that Ovid has become so dominant in my life, in my imagination, in my soul, really, and that book is all about water and fluidity, everything. Like metamorphosis is, everything is flowing in Ovid. I mean, that's it's like this flow, flow of life, flow of time, flow of experience, and so all of the aquatic imagery is incredible. And all the words in Latin for the sea and liquid are so interesting to think about. And as I'm translating the poem, I'm very conscious of Ovid's own relationship to water and whether it's rivers, whether it's sea, divinities who rule the sea, things that happen in the sea, people who are turned into liquid. I just translated a an amazing passage from the end of book five, Arethusa, in which she's transformed into liquid. So anyway, yeah, swimming is only increasing in its sort of necessity and profundity in my life. And I, and I think it's interesting, like I used to, um, the first tribe I felt I belonged to in my life was the tribe of writers and artists by extension, creative people, I think I found myself, for the first time, I found myself, speaking of Dovomitrovo, where I find myself. So I found myself for the first time, truly, I would say, in Provincetown, Massachusetts, in that fellowship period of seven years, because I was living with other writers, with other artists, visual artists and writers. And, and I felt that that was, I realized, okay, this is, I belong, I finally felt that I belonged to, to a tribe in an unquestioned way where I wasn't half this and, you know, but I was that. And now I would say I belong to a second tribe and it's swimmers 
And so now when I meet another swimmer, there's a kind of language that we know. In hearing you say this, I was reminded, uh, while I was researching for this interview, this Rome connection that Philip Gustin mm. and you share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could share that for the, for the listeners. Well, I remember going to see some Gustin at the Morgan Library around the time I was just about to move to Rome. So this was around 2012, 2011, somewhere around there. And there was some of his work up at the Morgan. And I went, so I had a friend, a great influence on me as a writer, the poet Bill Corbett, who died some years ago. I never knew who Philip Gustin was until I met his daughter. First I met his daughter, Marnie Corbett, and when I was at college. And I knew that the name she would mention, Philip Gustin, as someone, an artist, a painter, parents knew him, so on and so forth. And then I got to know her father when I moved to Boston. I got to know the whole family and Bill, um, who was very close to Gustin and collaborated with him. Um, And they actually made image poems. So Bill's poetry would be part of these drawings Gustin made. And they were all over the house and everything. In any case, so because of my friendship with Bill Corbett and his family and Marnie, I developed some interest and curiosity about Gustin because I would see these works of Gustin in their home. And anyway, so then I I went to see the show and I think it was even on like the little pamphlet or whatever, but just mentioning something about how his whole language changed his visual language changed when he went to Rome, when he went to the Academy, American Academy in Rome, actually. And which is where the American Academy served as my first landing pad in Rome. I was a resident there for the first three months that we lived there. So I had this in my head thinking, hmm, wow, his, his whole language changed, you know, when he went to Rome and he turned figurative. So again, not realizing that I was going to undergo a a kind of analogous metamorphosis and that my language was to change. Literally, my language was to change. But I was aware of the transformative power of Rome for Gustin just as I was leaving. Before we finish, I wanted to switch to another long-term engagement and affinity of yours, which is architecture. Mm. And you wrote your doctoral thesis on how Italian architecture influenced English playwrights of the 17th century. And during this time, you studied Renaissance architecture, from Brunelleschi's Pazzi Chapel to the Laurentian Library of Michelangelo. And you're a writer who, I think it must be said, or at least this is how I've interpreted some of your work, is very attuned to physical space. Even in this interview, the way you've been describing certain moments of your life physically, do you think your path to and love for Italy and the Italian language began with architecture? And in some sense, was was it a translation from buildings to words? Well, literally, it was because, I mean, honestly, before I started that dissertation, 
I didn't think about Italy very much, you know? I mean, it was just, it was there as a part of the broader vocabulary of life. Uh, I was aware of it, of course. But architecture was what I hooked onto as a student, not the literature, right? It was interesting. I mean, that came all was to come much later, much, much later. I think I'd read some some Dante in high school and, and in college. But it, it never went anywhere. You know, I never built on it. I had read one or two Italian authors. I'd read some Calvino. But I never was like, okay, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm doing eight million other things. But it was the architecture where I started to dig deeper and think about space, Italian space, Renaissance architecture, the language, you know, the vocabulary of architecture, which was very highly articulated in the Renaissance. And essentially, my dissertation was about translation. It was about how the English were translating those spaces and importing them and remaking them on English soil. Then how the playwrights, to go into the sort of literary part of my dissertation, how the playwrights were interpreting and remaking those spaces in their own dramatic works. So I think my dissertation absolutely fits under the broad umbrella of everything we've been talking about today. I don't think it's extraneous to the conversation at all. And I think this is such an interesting question. I haven't thought about it. But certainly it was space and the understanding of space and the building of space and the naming of space. One of the things I was always interested in was the idea of the courtyard, where so many of these gory Jacobean tragedies are often set in the courtyard. And all of this, of course, then went back another layer to my lifelong childhood obsession with ancient Roman Greece. And I realized that the Renaissance was also translating antiquity. So there were all sorts of nice ripples, broad ripples, echoes, however we want to call them, in terms of space. So I think, yes, the answer would be yes. I think space was the first thing I was reading in Italian. Visually, I was reading Italian space in a certain moment and then reading how it was being read. And that was what my dissertation was. Well, those were the questions that gave my dissertation, I hope, some sort of coherence and liftoff. <laughs> <laughs> but I had, a lot of, I had a lot of fun just thinking about it. I think I knew, I already knew then that I wasn't going to be a serious academic. So I just wanted to do something that was very stimulating for me and very different, very on the edges of my awareness because I really didn't know very much. I mean, I hadn't studied art history or architecture in college. I mean, a little. I took one or two courses maybe. But when I was in graduate school, I took a course with someone who was very interested in architecture and Italian architecture, a man named Roger Scruton, a philosopher who is no longer living. I was part of this program and he was part of the faculty of this program and partly a sort of broad humanistic course of study. And so part of that was those looking at these slides of 
Michelangelo's architecture and and so on and so forth. And so I think I was very, it was in that moment I was sort of thinking about these spaces, the poetics of space, there was a famous book, Poetics of Space. And that all kind of came together in my dissertation moment, those seven years, those were another patch. That was another very specific seven-year patch of my life. But I'm always thinking about the poetics of space and I'm always thinking about space. And now that I'm going to be moving back into my house in Fort Greene, I'm constantly thinking about that space and wondering how I will inhabit that space. I do have some architect friends, but I definitely have that that strain in me where I am sort of constantly hyper aware of the space I'm in and how the space ought to be or ideally would be. I realize this, that I, that not all people have that. You know, it's like not all people like to get in the water and swim laps. So there's that other, yeah, there's another kind of affinity for mm -hmm, people who think about space. I'd like to close on the subject of freedom and liberty. And there's a short paragraph in your new book that absolutely floored me. You write, Writing is a way to salvage life, to give it form and meaning. It exposes what we have hidden, unearths what we have neglected, misremembered, denied. It is a method of capturing, of pinning down, but it is also a form of truth, of liberation. And with time, as you go deeper and deeper into your work, into translation, into the Italian language, and just into life, <laughs> Do you feel more and more free, more liberated? How do you think about it in the context of that paragraph? So I think I must have been writing about Starnone, who is such an amazing writer. And I've learned so much from him, not only in terms of my Italian, but about life and how he writes about life. As we get older, I think it is imperative that we start to become aware that one day life will be free of us or we will be free of life. And I think that that awareness of mortality comes with, for most people, those of us who are lucky to live a certain, quote unquote, predictable amount of life the perspective starts to shift. And so I think freedom in that philosophical sense, yes, of one day I will be free of all of this. One day I'll be free of, of this, of this body and my consciousness. And so I certainly think about those things more as I grow older. But you know, and that's sort of, you know, sort of dwelling on mortality <laughs> side of the top conversation. But on the other side, on the more vital side of the conversation, there's a freedom from at least some of the things that I think weigh us down in previous chapters of life. And I feel that as well. Certainly, I feel that 
along with all of the responsibility that just accumulates and accumulates and accumulates as we move through life. Um, but I think the question of freedom doesn't exist without the question of constraints and limits. And I think that's, to go back to translation, translation is a very much a conversation between freedom and limits. And I think people who think, oh, it's a lesser art because you're not free to make the characters and make the plot. And it's a very superficial way of thinking about writing and language because translations are limitless in their potential literary translation talking about. And one can have so many different iterations of a great poem or of a great story or of a great novel. And yet you have the constraint of what it is that you are translating. So I think that it's more the awareness of the freedom and the constraints, right? So when I say in the book, well, I write in Italian to feel free, I, I wrote that many years ago. It's freedom and it's also sort of feeling very much constrained and hampered and limited by sort of what I'm able to do in that language. But with that, I do believe in that freedom comes from limits. I don't believe in freedom without that. It doesn't interest me without the limitations. Jumpa, thank you so much for coming in today. <laughs> thank this you so much. Such a pleasure. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for your questions. Extra thanks to our Season 5 sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. A unique place for learning, Lecole welcomes the general public to the world of jewelry through courses, conferences, exhibitions, videos, and book publications. You can find out more about Lecole at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can listen to our other podcast, At a Distance, by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. And if you like our program, please be sure to subscribe and leave comments. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Emily Jang, Tiffany Zhao, and Johnny Simon.